I actually want to start this morning uh, by reading a quote, and then I'm going to pray, and then we will jump into the text. I saw a quote this week that I think is just a helpful reminder anytime we open the word together, and it comes from Sinclair Ferguson, so I want to be, begin our time here. He said, every exposition of scripture is an extended personal counseling session in which the Holy Spirit shows us the wonder and power of the gospel and also exposes the secrets of our hearts. And may that be true of us as we gather around the word this morning. Let me begin by praying. Father, we come to you because we're needy to hear from you. And you have spoken. And we ask that you would speak now through your word and by your spirit to change us, to help us to understand the ways in which we have forgotten. Forgotten who you are and what you will do and what you have said. So remind our hearts this morning. I pray that you would cause us to see our great need, even if we don't recognize that as we meet together today. Be at work by your word to make us look more like you and to make much of you together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I grew up in a home where uh, movies like Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid were off limits in my household. Uh, I don't think I saw either of those until I was in my 20s. And some of you grew up in homes with very different restrictions or guidelines or rules than those around you. Maybe people at school, maybe even people within the church, right? They had different <laughs> rules for how things operated in their home, and that's good. We're not all the same there. But as a kid, envy was a constant struggle. One of my best friends growing up had every single Disney VHS in those plastic containers that you close. He had every new game system the week it came out, a pool, a hot tub. He always beat me in sports. I mean, this guy had everything I wanted, right? And it wasn't obvious to me then, but much of my childhood was spent comparing my life to him or to those around me, discontent with the situation that God had given me, the situation he had put me in as a kid. And for some of you this morning, in different ways, Envy and discontent is a subtle thing in your life. And for others, it's very obvious, very pervasive for you. You recognize it right away. But for all of us, it can show up in an instant. On a random Tuesday morning, as you scroll Instagram, looking at everyone's vacations and destinations, think about what your Tuesday is about to look like. As you look at smiling faces and well-dressed, well-behaved kids, and all you can think about are the struggles within your marriage or your parenting or your singleness. Anything can bring it on. I mean, anything. A screaming kid, a text from a friend, a conversation over coffee, someone's family picture, a growing pile of laundry. And seemingly, without notice, before you've even had breakfast, you're questioning the life that God has given you. You're frustrated with your life. Just two days ago or the previous week, you were singing How Great Thou Art with your church family and genuinely rejoicing in how great your God is. And then in that moment, you're questioning that same God and the life he's decided to give you. Whether it's others' accomplishments or other people's relationships or their finances or just that their grass is greener, literally, <laughs> what their yard looks like, what their house looks like, almost every situation can release a sigh of discontent. The weather's too cold or too hot. 
The gray hairs are multiplying too quickly. My body is too broken. My kids are too crazy. And as we watch those around us with different homes, different lives, different toys, different relationships, we lose perspective. But not only that, we begin to question the goodness of God, the grace of God in our life. We forget what is ultimate because we get so consumed by what is temporary. Thomas Aquinas described envy as sorrow for another's good. As Derek Kidner put it, there is no heaven that envy cannot make into a hell. It blinds and distorts how we experience heaven itself. There's nothing so blinding as envy. This was the nerve the serpent touched in Eden to make even paradise appear an insult. Psalm 37 speaks to discontent, envious hearts. To people like you and me who are often too busy grumbling and complaining to miss out on the trust and the faithfulness of our God. Now, some of you are probably a little nervous. How are we going to make it through 40 verses this morning? Uh, and we're about, we got about 30 seconds per verse, so we're going to get moving here. But there's no easy way to divide up Psalm 37. Psalm follows what is called an alphabetical acrostic, which is basically just every verse or two is working its way through the Hebrew alphabet. So it's really a beautiful psalm. And David is just kind of slowly working his way through the Hebrew alphabet, reminding himself and others of the prosperity of the wicked versus the righteous. And I think his intention, one of his intentions, is to grow our confidence, to grow confidence in the hearts of those who read and hear, those tempted to look around, to doubt the trustworthiness and the goodness of God. So instead of working verse by verse, I'm not really going to do that, we're going to walk through this psalm looking at three main themes that I think are highlighted throughout the psalm, and there are other themes, but these are the three that I want to focus in on this morning. So we'll look at the wicked, we will look at the Lord, and then at our call to trust the Lord and do good. The psalm truly is, I think, a reminder for the discontent. So the first reminder we will highlight is related to the wicked. If you were to get your highlighter out and just kind of mark the term the wicked or something referring to that, at least 16 times I found that that shows up in these 40 verses. And I've kind of compiled those references under two main headings that I want to talk about. The first is that the wicked seek to destroy and the wicked fade like the grass. The wicked in this context, even as we've seen in other psalms and you'll see throughout the psalms, are those who despise the faithful covenant people of God. They have no fear of God. As Psalm 36 talked about, there's no fear of God in their eyes. So they live as if they are God, and they pursue things that bring them whatever they want. And so they seek to destroy. If that is your aim, if that is your goal, then you will do whatever you have to do to get that, to make that a reality. You can see some of the passages where that shows up. But they plot against the righteous, it says. They draw the sword and bend their bows. They borrow but do not pay back. They seek to put to death the righteous. They plot against the righteous, verse 12. Their idolatry causes them to do whatever they have to do to protect their idol, whatever that idol may be, primarily them, but whatever else flows out of that. Those who don't fear God are tempted to destroy those who do. Those who live as if they are their own God will fight for that throne, will do whatever they have to do to gain it. 
But from our perspective, there's no use, from those who are in Christ, there's no use being angry over those who seem to have every earthly advantage over you. Their type of life, this way of thinking and operating brings death, not life. It reaps destruction, not beauty and joy. Because just as you and I are still tempted to do at times, when we don't live in the fear of the Lord, we tend to worship ourselves, and we will fight for that worship. And that's what we see in those who are opposed to God, in the wicked as the psalmist describes them. So those who don't fear the Lord, they seek to destroy, and ultimately the wicked fade like the grass. That's all over this psalm. Verse 2 says, actually, those words, fade like the grass, but this idea is all throughout the psalm. It's the same idea, just in different language. Ultimately, rather than getting what they want, rather than killing the righteous or discrediting God and those who fear God, they actually end up destroying themselves. This is highlighted, I think, really well in verses 14 and 15, if you'll look there with me. Verse 14, the wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart. Their bows shall be broken. So what they think brings life and victory actually brings death. What they're seeking to do, which they think brings them ultimate power and victory, actually ends up hurting them. Let me just give a quick idea of where we see this theme in the psalm. I'm going to do this a couple times because we're not walking through it verse by verse. I want you to see where these things are drawn from. Verse 2, they will soon fade like the grass, wither like the green herb. Verse 9, evildoers shall be cut off. In just a little while, they will be no more. The Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Their arms shall be broken. They will perish. They will be cut off, passed away, and no more. Altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. It's a theme that is hard to miss in the Psalms when talking about those who don't live in the fear of the Lord, those who are described here as the wicked. The point of this language is to emphasize the end of the wicked, that what you see now is temporary, even as Jeff prayed this morning, that justice will come. Why would you covet that which does not last? Why would you long to be like those who have no present and no future hope? David is telling them not to worry, not to envy, not to fret. Not to live with a focus on what they can see in their enemies, but instead to take the long view, the eternal view. To let last things determine how they and us, how we think and live in the present. It seems like he has come to realize as he's talking and writing this, that the prosperity of the wicked is like a dream. It seems so real until you wake up to see it, it was all a temporary fantasy. Spurgeon hits on this when he said, As a dream vanishes so soon as a man awakes, so the instant the Lord begins to exercise his justice and call men before him, the pomp and prosperity of proud transgressors shall melt away. I don't think the psalm is meant to, for us to rejoice in the downfall of other people or to be happy when the wicked have sorrow or loss. It is meant to fix our eyes on what is true and lasting and precious to us instead of envying it as if this world is all there is. 
recognizing that as you're tempted to long for a different life, that will fade like the grass. That will be cut off. That is fleeting. It's to let us know that what we've learned about brevity and success, the brevity of success, the brevity of prosperity and power and comfort, let what you know about that brevity of those things control your perspective. Control your perspective on the difficulties of life, the pressures that are coming in on you and the things that you can't control and the conflicts that enter into your relationships. Instead of dwelling on what seems distorted or what it could be like, dwell on what God reveals to be true about evil and the enemy and about those who live as if there is no God. This has to influence how we live, how we think about our life, how we think about the world, how we think about our future. It's almost as if David is ripping the blinders off, hoping to rip the blinders off so that we can actually see things clearly about this life and about those who seem to be prospering and about the things we long for and envy and cause us to live in discontent. So therefore, the wicked around us should not cause us to be discontent. And we know they don't actually cause us to be. It's, it's us. But as we see that and experience that, a lot of times that flows out of us. We are discontent, but it shouldn't be that way. The entire psalm begins, do not fret, do not envy. The idea of discontent and jealousy, even anger in some of that language. And he'll then go on to remind us why those around us should not cause us to be that way. Nothing about the wicked should cause us to envy or live in discontent unless we think this life is all there is. Unless we think this is as good as it gets, so grab everything you can. I know it would not be very kind for us to call those in our lives who don't fear God, who don't know Jesus, wicked. I would not advise you to do that today. And not many people in our circles that don't fear God are trying to hunt us down. There are certainly places in the world where that is true. But these are the realities of the psalmist. This is the category God gives for those apart from him, those who still sin, those whose sin separates them from God and causes them to live in opposition to him. And those types of people are a part of our lives every single day, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, on social media, on our TVs. Even if the outworking of their sin and opposition to God plays itself out a little differently in our context right now. And if we love God, and if we love them, knowing how fleeting their pleasure and their power and their success and happiness is, should not cause us to then spend the rest of our lives trying to get that same fleeting pleasure, success, happiness, power, with a little bit of Jesus as a part of that. But instead, to live as if there is actually something greater, something more sure, something eternal, truly satisfying in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to call them to that same hope, that same eternal pleasure forevermore. I'm afraid when we pursue those same things, when we envy those same things and run after those same things in the same way, what is it about our life? What is it about what we love and pursue that actually shows off that Jesus is better? That contentment in him is something we have. 
we're all prone to think about God's goodness in light of our current level of personal happiness. It's measured by the things that are physical or immediate, and it's really hard for us to comprehend how a good God could not at least just give us a little bit of the good life. So then we evaluate the trustworthiness of our eternal creator God based on the creation. And the psalmist does a beautiful job of reminding us all that it's absolutely fleeting if we put our hope and our trust in those things and in what we see from those around us. And I think that should be a weapon against our envy and against our discontent. So what have you tended to struggle with envy of others? Where have you tended to struggle in those areas? What have you been prone to covet? Or what about your life has caused you to doubt that God can be trusted? There seems to be something coming into the lives of these people in David's life that is causing them to fret, to be envious, to look around and say, even as Psalm 73 says, where are you, God, in this? Why do the wicked prosper? So what about your life has caused you to doubt that he can be trusted? I think answering those questions can quickly expose the true treasures of your heart. They may be good things, but they have become treasures to you that often become more valuable than God himself. So as we shift to the next theme that I think we see, we, we could definitely focus on the righteous in contrast to the wicked. I think that's intentional here in the psalm, but I want to spend our time looking at how the Lord is the one who actually establishes and holds that future. So in opposition to the wicked, the Lord is worthy of our trust. And again, that's all throughout the psalm. You can see those references there. Verse 4, he will give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5, he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness and your justice. You shall inherit the land that he provides and he gives to you. Our steps are established by him. He's lending generously. He will make us dwell forever. He will make us. He gives us a future. We are not left alone, however alone we may feel at times. And our future is not in question. It's not in jeopardy, despite our circumstances, despite what we may see around us. We can trust him, and he is indeed faithful. So David is comforting them with the truth about who God is based on how this covenant-keeping Yahweh has kept his promises over and over again. He's proven himself faithful over and over again. And we don't know all the reasons why each life looks different. Each of our stories unfolds in a different way. But reaching home, inheriting the land, does not depend on us knowing the mysteries of God in those ways but instead on trusting in the God and the God who makes those promises. He's always been faithful. He will always be faithful, and that faithfulness is not determined by our fleeting circumstances. No one faced more difficult and unjust circumstances than our Lord Jesus Christ. No one had more reason to grow bitter and discontent than him. Surrounded by evil, opposed by people he loved and followed and walked with him. Yet no one's life showed more perfectly that our God is worthy of trust. 
Christ died for our sins, was buried and defeated sin and death three days later. The tomb is empty, a guarantee that he can be trusted. He has shown us that he can be trusted over and over and over again. And you can be among the righteous today based on the work of Christ alone by believing in him, trusting what God did for you in and through Christ. God has acted, verse 5. He has brought forth righteousness and justice, verse 6. He has secured our future, verse 9. He has established our steps, verse 23. And he has given us in Christ every reason to be the most content people in the world. Trust in him for salvation today. I plead with you, if you do not know Jesus, trust in him for salvation So David no longer envied the prosperous wicked. When he remembered their end, when he remembered who the Lord is and what he will do, that his God could be trusted. It started to dull the sharp edges of suffering and circumstances of life and what he saw around him. One of the themes that we see a lot in these verses that may have stood out to you is the, the idea of the land, inheriting the land. They're cut off from the land. We inherit the land. And some of that may be connected to the fact that the wicked in this context now control the land. The righteous are oppressed, literally. So even in that way, it felt like God could not be trusted because he wasn't keeping some of the promises that he had made in, in the ways that they thought he would. Verse 11 says that the humble or the meek will inherit the land. Maybe that causes you to remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where he says that the meek will inherit the land. And the New Testament doesn't, doesn't offer physical land to us, but something much better. But there's something greater being focused on here as he talks and he writes and sings and prays. Those who enjoy the Lord's blessings will inherit the land, but those opposed to him will be cut off. This points beyond this life to the new heaven and the new earth, a promise that can be trusted because of the God who makes it. So we should hope in this salvation. We should hope not only because we have a future hope, but we have a present hope. And this is what we receive from our faithful, trustworthy God. In what situations have you been tempted to think of God as being unfaithful? How does the perspective found here in Psalm 37 fight against that temptation? I'm not going to spend more time unpacking that. I think that's something, if you want to think through that and pray through that, what are the, the areas in your own life? How does the perspective that we see from David fight against the temptation you have to think of God as unfaithful? God provides for his people in the midst of their troubles, and he provides for them for eternity. He's worthy of our trust. And I think this connects to another promise we are reminded of, that the Lord will never forsake us. Verse 28 reads, For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. The Lord will not abandon him or let him be condemned. Verse 39, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them. We wait for the Lord, verse 
34, and as we sang a little bit earlier, because he will not forsake us, because he holds us, because he preserves his people, we can wait for him with confidence. He has not let us go. He has not lost or abandoned us, and he never will. He is our stronghold or safe place, verse 39. Even when we don't understand the why of our situation or the why of what we see around us, we can trust that he has not left us on our own. So how are you even interpreting the things that come into your life? Where do you begin when things show up unannounced? As, as, as we mentioned at the beginning, it can happen in an instant. How do you interpret those things that come into your life? If you begin with the truth that he is worthy of your trust, that he will not forsake you, that your end is sure and hopeful, that you will inherit the land, your perspective on the things of this life will drastically change. It doesn't mean everything is easy. It doesn't mean you don't grieve. But your perspective begins to change as you walk through those types of circumstances. As you look around, you see things differently. No matter how things may seem, Psalm 37 tells the righteous what the outcome will be. The righteous have the Lord as their stronghold, their savior, their deliverer, their refuge. He will save them. He will not forsake them. And that is true for us in Christ. And even now, he's not forsaken us. David reflects a little bit on his life in verses 25 and 26. If you'll look down there with me. He even encourages them with God's day-to-day provision. He writes, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously. It's almost as if David, an older saint, now kind of reflects back on his life. He's looking at the younger believer, the one who hasn't walked quite as far as he has, and he says, trust me, God is faithful. He's even providing for you now with provisions that you don't deserve. He will provide for your future and he's also going to take care of his own now. We can sometimes miss out on the provisions of the Lord even in our day-to-day lives as we reflect upon the circumstances of our life. We can live as if he has forsaken us while he cares in every single way for us. If we will just see it, his care is everywhere. As with all relationships, as we grow in relationship with the Lord, we will come to trust him more and more. We will come to trust his care for us. And David, as an older saint, looks back and tries to encourage us in that. Sometimes the weight of your trouble and my trouble can cause us to overlook even the basic provisions that God has given us that are staring us right in the face. And it can cause us to be unthankful, ungrateful, especially when we are so busy looking around that we barely look up. We barely look up to to be reminded of, to remember our trustworthy, faithful God. And all of this, the truth about Yahweh, should cause us to be content. We see a similar idea. I would encourage you to read Psalm 73 if you have time today or this week. It's very similar in some of the themes that we've seen in Psalm 37. Easy to remember, 3773. As Asaph struggles with envy over the prosperity of the wicked. And in that passage, he had to learn some of the same things. The true fate of those who don't fear the Lord and the trustworthiness of his God. 
and contentment in him, what he is doing. The solution to envy in Psalm 73 and 37 is contentment in God, who God is and what he provides for his people. Because he's worthy of our trust and will not forsake us. This should help us fight against the tendency to look around and compare and fret and envy, to fight against self-pity that shows up so often as we think about our circumstances in our life. Or the urge to just even work really hard to get things we envy so that we don't feel them anymore. Sometimes instead of being content in God, as David is encouraging us to do, we just try to get all the things we envy so that the feeling goes away or the thoughts go away, and then we recognize, okay, there's more to envy. There's more to be discontent with. But ultimate contentment is found in him. As children of a sovereign, wise, and good father, saved by grace through faith in Christ, based not on our own work but his, we have everything we could possibly need to fight against envy and discontent. And the joy that comes with that is such a gift. The joy that comes from not being discontent and not being envious and not looking around in those ways is such a gift. In the 1600s, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs made a list of what he called contentment's excellencies. He has a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Old English, but worth reading. And I pray that even thinking on these will motivate us towards this way of life. There's five of them I'm going to share. The first is contentment makes us ready to worship God. When we worship in private or in public, we acknowledge that God alone is God and that we are his humble creatures who owe him our very selves. If we are contented, we will be eager to sing and pray and listen to the God who does all things well. Number two, contentment allows us to experience and display God's grace. Number three, contentment does not come naturally to anyone. Apart from grace, all people grumble and complain almost without pause. But by his spirit, God transforms us, making us content and displaying his power to everyone who sees our lives. Number four, contentment frees us to serve God and others. If we are constantly preoccupied with our own situation, the things we lack or the things we wish were different, we won't be looking for opportunities to serve. The most useful people in God's kingdom are those who trust the Lord regardless of outward circumstances. And number five, contentment keeps us from various temptations to sin. When we're always thinking about what we would like to change in our circumstances, Satan is quick to respond. He will eagerly tempt us to sinfully demand or take the things that God hasn't given us. If instead we are satisfied with what God has given, we will not give Satan an opportunity in our hearts. So David in Psalm 37 and even Jeremiah here, I think provide ammo to fight against discontentment. And he also, in the psalm, admonishes us within that psalm to do something as we wait. And that is to trust the Lord and do good. Trust the Lord and do good. We're not just to sit idly by as we wait. It's not the waiting room experience as we wait for our name to be called. It's an active waiting. We don't just simply sit and think about, well, their end is coming, our ending is good, I'll sit and wait. 
The psalmist again makes this very clear. Fret not, be not envious, verse 1. Trust the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Befriend faithfulness. 4. Delight yourself. 5. Commit your way. Trust in him. 7. Be still. Wait patiently. 8. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not. 21. The righteous is generous and gives. 27. Turn away. Do good. Speak wisdom. Speak justice. Wait and keep his way. Verse 40. Take refuge in him. You cannot walk away from this psalm thinking we are just supposed to sit and wait. We are to be active in our waiting as we trust in him and get to work doing good, making much of our God. This is a theme throughout the psalm for us to to bank everything on him and live in obedience to him. Many have called this psalm, Psalm 37, a wisdom psalm, has a lot of connections even to the Proverbs and some of the other wisdom literature. And you hear echoes of this in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on your own perspective of things. You have a clouded view of things. Your your sinful nature at times makes you see things in a way that is very unclear. So trust in the Lord. Lean on his perspective, his understanding. And even later in verse 7 of Proverbs 3, be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. David shows us in Psalm 37 that sin really steals our joy. It doesn't give us more joy. It makes us an enemy of God. It ends in destruction. But obedience, on the other hand, brings joy as we trust our good and faithful Father. So delight yourself in the Lord. Trust in him and do good. Get to work showing off the God worthy of your trust. By loving him and others, you will be far less concerned with the life that others seem to have and the life you don't have. Verse 4, pretty popular verse. I I knew this well as a high schooler for not so good reasons. I don't know if anyone relates to that, but instead of it being a verse we pray before we spend time with our high school crush... It reminds us that when we delight in God, we find our pleasure in him in the way that the world finds pleasure in the satisfactions of this life. As we look to him, our desires become his desires. We want what he wants. We want to do what he wants us to do. It's not that we try to obey him so that we get what we want. We we learn to trust and know him and we want what he wants. If he becomes our delight, the desires of our heart become his desires. This is how we live a life of contentment. Because ultimately, we're wanting what he wants for us instead of what we want for ourselves. Proverbs, again, 23, says almost identical to this. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. You can almost copy-paste that into our psalm. There is an end coming, and we are kept by a God worthy of our delight and our trust and our obedience. All that is now wrong will be made right. In pointing us to the end of all things, Psalm 37 grows our confidence as we're tempted to look around and doubt the goodness, trustworthiness of God. And I think it's a needed reminder for those like us, like you and me, who struggle with discontent.
Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I pray that you have counseled us by your word as you have exposed the secrets of our hearts and you have allowed us to see more clearly who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would trust you today, that we would seek to do good today and not be consumed with the thoughts of people around us and the lives of people around us and the prosperity of those that we long to be like, but help us to be content in you. We know that's a work that you have to do in us. I pray that we would walk in obedience as we seek to do that and live and think that way. And that ultimately you would receive all the glory and praise for it, not because of anything we have done, but because of Christ's work on our behalf. And it's in his name we pray. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.